This podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 60 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell. And I'm Hayley Alice Roberts. Another landmark episode. And for the 60th episode, we are going back to the 60s in various guises. First off, we're going to be looking at Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho. And then, for the first time in quite a while, we're going back to the realm of the public information film with the intriguingly titled A Boy Goes Cycling. The first item that we're going to be covering in our 60s related episode is 2021's Last Night in Soho, directed by Edgar Wright, which stars Thomas e. McKenzie, Anya Taylor-Joy and Matt Smith, amongst others. Yes, so as I said in the outro to our previous episode, this was my favourite film of 2021. After a second viewing, I'm very much still in love with this movie. So before we get into the review of the film, we've got to have a synopsis. And who is that synopsis going to be written by? Well, none other than our guy, Nick Briganis. So these uh, following words are all from Nick. Fixated on the swinging 60s and all things fashion, creative wide-eyed Eloise has big dreams of becoming a designer. With this in mind, the aspiring young Nick Courtier relocates to bustling London to study at the prestigious London College of Fashion. Unbeknown to her, however, that the big city can be a lot. Indeed, as brilliant sparks jealousy and the ugly past creeps in, the frail bounds between reality and fantasy start to blur, and all of a sudden, hair-raising visions threaten the dream. Now, a fiercely talented, effortlessly seductive, and rapishly ambitious persona bursting with confidence emerges, luring ecstatic Eloise into a dazzling world of light and shadow. But success always comes at a price. Who knows what happened last night in Soho? What a great synopsis. It doesn't reveal too much at all. It doesn't really even get into the plot too much. So I quite like that. I think that's leaving up a lot of intrigue. When I first saw the trailer for Last Night in Soho, it was the first trailer I'd seen in a while that really just like enticed me completely. I think it's just how it relays this mystery. You have this quite upbeat beginning to it of a young girl heading to London for the first time and all the excitement that comes with that. And then she is transported to the 1960s and it's this very much romanticised view of the 60s and she starts to follow this young woman at the time and sees her story play out. Then the trailer suddenly becomes quite dark and menacing and then it had very much jalo overtones in it as well. As I say, for me, this was a film I was like, I have to go and see this as soon as it comes out. And it did not disappoint. Even with the trailer kind of giving you a little bit and depicting some of the kind of 
like to dark elements i still wasn't anticipating how good this movie actually was when i saw it and you know how much um i didn't even guess what was going to happen even from what they showed in the trailer yeah it was really great to see it in the cinema i think it doesn't lose an awful lot if you see a decent copy on blu-ray and you see it on a decent sized tv but i do think there is something to be said for seeing this movie on a big screen in the dark in a cinema it does ramp up the atmosphere it looks absolutely beautiful it's an amazing looking movie the visuals are absolutely superb the period detail is spot on as you say it does have serious jello vibes there's a lot of clever use of color and light and shade and even the costumes feed into how the story is progressing because as things get darker and more seedy the costumes become shabbier in the 60s which is a very clever touch indeed as you say everything is romanticized at the start it's this hedonistic fantasy world of the 60s but as you progress through the plot and you find out the story of sandy who is the main character in the 60s segment who is played by annie taylor joy as all that starts to fall away and our ambitions start to get shattered everything becomes extremely dark now there's a lot of jump scares in this movie specifically in the second half it's very much a horror movie but at the same time it's a story about redemption and being who you want to be and what happens when the romanticized version of somewhere that you're going to in this case london doesn't pan out for either the character in the 60s or the character in the modern day plot it's a really really clever movie i think that it didn't get quite the credit that it deserved on its initial release and i think most of that is down to the fact that the twist divided quite a lot of people i think the twist is pretty good it wasn't quite what i was expecting and it sends the plot into a direction that i didn't think it necessarily needed to go but it does seem to fit with the story as well it doesn't lapse into making certain characters victims or villains i think it leaves you in that weird moral space where you can understand the motives of these killings without actually thinking it's a good thing yeah i definitely get what you mean the ending for me i was fine with it i i wasn't disappointed i think it is a really good twist and on a rewatch you kind of see the hints you're more aware of the hints that of, of it more so i think it's very clever how it builds up i think just the story just engrosses you from the beginning the character of eloise she's very much fish out of water she's lived in the countryside going to the big city for the first time feels quite isolated and um, the roommates she have um aren't exactly the nicest of people and I think there's aspects of, you know, feeling different and alone. And, you know, lots of people can relate to that. I think it's definitely captured that whole going to university for the first time and feeling like you don't fit in. That it does exceptionally well. And then it builds slowly and then she decides to leave her halls of residence, finds this bedsit and then becomes transported into this story of this mystery woman in the 1960s. 
for a while we don't know why this is happening all the information we have is that Eloise can see visions of the supernatural which again I absolutely love anything to do with the paranormal so this just like grabbed me in straight away because it's just that whole strange and weird like slant to it I really like that and the story is very well played out because as we said at the beginning you have this heightened romanticized version of the 60s and everything's going really well and she's kind of gripped by the story and she's shirking off her real world responsibilities to a point because she's so enticed in this world and it's just that escapism for her but then soon she discovers this really dark gritty underbelly and things basically take a nightmarish turn and it's very much like a fever dream all of it is like you just have to go with it and it's just that thought of being stuck in like somewhere that you just feel that there's like no way out and and no kind of hope as well there's there's that to it i'm very much a huge fan of this movie i just think and, and as well as the atmosphere as well it's just soaked in atmosphere and the visuals as you said darren are absolutely stunning and i do love that you know it's been inspired by the work of argento as well edgar wright has expressed that Suspiria was one of his top inspirations. There's actually a scene with Eloise running in the pouring rain and she's soaked and that is very much direct homage to Suspiria so I absolutely love that. Yeah as an Argento fan it's nice to see that sort of mention that's not done in a particularly wanky way it's done in a quite a respectful way and it's not a complete rip-off of it but you can tell where the influences are. There is a lot of red in this movie there's an awful lot of red the red lighting takes a lot of precedence and it's also the red lighting that signifies we're about to go back in the 60s as well because all the modern day stuff at the very beginning is very very muted but as soon as you get this red light coming in then you know that you're going to be transported into one of the dream sequences but also cleverly as the movie wears on and the past starts to bleed into the present then you do get these bursts of colour interrupting what's happening in the present day as everything starts to collide with each other. So this is a movie where there's a lot of thought gone into how this was made. It hasn't just been chucked together. It isn't just a quickie horror movie that you're going to watch and then probably forget. There's certainly a lot of love gone into this in every single aspect even down to the soundtrack the soundtrack is obviously very very carefully chosen there's lots and lots of melancholic 60s music that's mostly female vocals as well which really soaks up the atmosphere as well as the the visuals and the period detail and the dialogue and the fact that they've got 60s icons in this movie as well so you've got Dame Diana Rigg is in it Terence Stamp is in it, playing a very seedy guy indeed. And you've got Rita Tushingham in it as well, who is Eloise's mum. And if you haven't seen a movie that Rita Tushingham was in called Straight Until Morning, that is a recommendation. It's not an actual 60s movie. It was made in 72, but it's got very much that kitchen sink vibe of a lot of 60s movies. And it was born out of Hammer trying to make something a little bit more down-to-earth and gritty. So it's almost like Hammer having a go at doing a Ken Loach-style drama. And it's so weird, and it's so 
melancholic and it's just got the most horrible ending to it. So if you haven't seen Straight Until Morning, I'm not going to spoil anything about it, but check it out because it's an amazing piece of work. It's a really slow burn. Not everybody's going to like it, but I think it's a really underrated movie. Cool. Yeah, I've never seen that. So uh, I will be sure to check it out once I get a chance. Again, as you say, there's a lot of love that went into Last Night in Soho, and that is also seen within the practical effects of the film. Edgar Wright wanted to do this, um, you know, make this movie as horror movies were made back in the day. An example would be there's this fantastic scene once Eloise has gone into the 60s world and she enters Café de Paris where um, it's like a club where there's like a singer, which is still a black, and people drinking and, and socialising, that type of thing. So she, she enters into this club and she is basically the mirror image of Sandy. And this was actually achieved by a double set. Behind the mirror, there's like going to be a, a green screen where they've got one actress one side, one the other. And they had the cloakroom attendant, which is, this is quite a fun fact, played by the twins, James Phelps and Oliver Phelps um, from the Harry Potter series. So had them, because obviously they're identical twins, so um, we wouldn't know the difference. And then there's also another great scene in the same sequence where it cuts between Sandy and Eloise dancing with Jack, played by Matt Smith. So it's as if Eloise is embodying Sandy and embodying what she's going through. She's literally living these moments through her eyes and they achieved that by having both actresses sort of switching sides and running underneath the camera and when it was their turn to dance with Matt Smith they just um, sort of like switch between and I thought that was really interesting really clever that's on the special features so you can see how that's all done if you want to see the effect of the movie magic there. Yeah they've got a very good steady cam operator who is really on the top of his game even his movements are choreographed with the dance. So he has to be in the exact right place at the same time so that when the actress has changed positions, his view of the scene doesn't include them sort of switching over. And they did it live. And even when you watch it in the special features, it's still a bit of a mystery how they did it because this is all happening at full speed. And you look at it in the actual movie itself and there seems to be no cutting at all it's just there as it was when they filmed it so it's an incredibly clever piece of work i imagine that well they never said how many takes that took i imagine it was probably not all that many but i can't i can't imagine they got it first go even though there was a lot of rehearsal in it yeah absolutely and it's really cool to see the rehearsal stage of that sequence as well yeah. And the facade of the Café du Paris is, the, I think, the Empire Cinema in Leicester Square as well, which is quite an interesting fact. The film is also very James Bond reference heavy. So, again, the moment at the near the beginning where she first walks into the 60s, um, the James Bond movie Thunderball is um, in glaring view being advertised across the cinema. And also the drink Sandy orders a Vespa, which um, is yep. from Casino Royale. And of course, uh, Diana Rigg, who plays Miss Collins in this film, the landlady of the apartment. She um, was a Bond girl back in the day. Yeah, there's lots and lots of references to the era. And it just feeds into just how great this movie is. 
I think it's a movie that people were expecting it to be one thing and they expected it to be heavy on gore and sort of that kind of brash Edgar Wright, Shaun of the Dead type stuff, but given a bit of a 60s sheen. And it was probably a bit of a surprise to some people that he'd gone heavily into the atmosphere. It takes its time to tell the story. I think it's about an hour and 56, this movie. But it doesn't feel its length at all. It does need time to build up the characters and to tell the story and to give everybody the depth that they need to do. Even Matt Smith's character, who is a genuinely nasty piece of work, even he's given some depth. So, yes, he's a bad guy, but you're given some insight into why he's a bad guy. He's on the make. He wants to do well by himself, and he doesn't really care about who he's got to tread on to do that. But even he starts off as this very charming guy who suddenly turns into this horrible, manipulating beast of a man who Sandy's trying to escape and you're wondering how she's actually going to do it or if she is actually going to be able to escape him. There's lots of stuff going on in this movie and I think that for people to just dismiss it saying, well, it's just still just a horror movie, it does point out that horror is where quite a lot of the most interesting movies still get made to this day. Certainly, there's an element of fashion in it. So if you're interested in the fashion industry, it kind of skims the surface. But if you like to see lovely outfits and you like to see pieces from the period, then you can enjoy the fashion. You can enjoy the visuals. If you're getting too fed up with the 60s music, then you do get Susie and the Banshees at one point. They go to a party. So I was very pleased to hear Susie and the Banshees on the soundtrack. I can't find an awful lot of fault with this movie. I think it's pretty well paced. It doesn't go over the top in terms of violence. Although at the end, be warned, it is extremely bloody. But it's all within the confines of the plot. The performances are all great. Thomas E. McKenzie is brilliant in the lead. Anya Taylor-Joy, well, has Anya Taylor-Joy done a Duff performance yet? I can't think of one. Matt Smith, yeah, he's great at being horrible. Doctor Who, being really, really horrible in this. And all the 60s icons, it's lovely to see Diana Rigg. Rita Tushingham's great. Terence Stamp is absolutely brilliant in this. I really, really do like this movie. It was one of my favourite horror movies of last year. I can't quite remember where it was in my top 20. I think it was number five. I'd have to check. But I saw a ton of horror movies last year. I mean, really saw a ton of horror movies last year. And for this to get to number five, yeah, it's way up there. That's fair. I didn't see a lot of horror movies last year as much as I'd have liked. So um, <laughs> that's why for me seeing this was a real gem because... It was one that I made you know, a conscious effort to go and see because I loved the trailer so much and I was really intrigued by it. And it just did not disappoint. It didn't fail on any level. I just love every single second of this film. I don't ever get bored during it. You know, it, it is a slow burn to a point, but it keeps you intrigued and it's just a testament to how good the storytelling is in this. You really do feel for the characters I'd say it's quite an emotional film in a lot of ways. There's so many harrowing moments, 
and you know you feel empathy for both characters for Eloise and for Sandy with what they're going through and just how this poor unsuspecting girl is just reliving this horror through this woman's eyes and she's just determined to get to the truth to get justice for it and then you know it goes through that whole thing where people don't believe her and um, deem her as crazy and then there's also a really nice side romance plot for Eloise. She meets um, a young man called John who's on her course in the university and he's the only person who is generally kind to her as well. So I think the aspect of their romance in it is very sweet. It's an 18 certificate here in the UK as well. Um, as Darren said, it's not hugely gory, but there are some quite graphic moments of bloodshed, but they're all necessary. They hit the right notes. They come in at the right point. So it doesn't feel like they're just making it gory for gore's sake at all. It hits hard. It, it's a gut punch, but it's worthy of being there. I just, I just don't think this movie could be mildly violent. I think it does need to be graphically violent. But because it's such a good movie with the storytelling and the performances, you know, it doesn't feel like oh, it's just going there just for the thrills of it. It's not. It's it's completely ingrained into the story. Stephen King himself absolutely loves this um, film. He said that he doesn't normally re-watch a lot of movies, but he said there are so many good things out there, but this one is special. And I completely agree with Mr. Stephen King there. I just don't think we can argue against him with that one because it is a special film. It's one that I still think about from the moment I watched it. I can't, couldn't wait to like watch it again. And I knew we planned it instantly. We were going to do it for this podcast. So I'm really glad I had the chance to get the Blu-ray, watch it again. And that's another thing these days, because everything's on streaming, I don't typically buy a lot of Blu-rays anymore. I'm trying to be quite resourceful and not <laughs> not just buy a load of movies that'll sit on a shelf. So for me, it has to be a movie that I completely love for me to actually have own a physical copy of it. Yeah, I can't go against Stephen King. If he likes it, I can't really say. Well, I'm not going to say a bad thing about it anyway, because I do really like this movie. Also, you do get to hear Anya Taylor-Joy singing Downtown. Anya Taylor-Joy's voice, pretty fucking special. Yeah, it's an incredible performance because it makes that song sound so downbeat and melancholic. And again, the music in this film, I mean, I'm not overly familiar with a lot of 60s music, but the way they have kind of repurposed it in the film, there's so many creepy elements to it. I think... With old songs, there's definitely a way of turning them into something a bit sinister, like in Ghost Stories, for example, mm. um, yes. which we talked about before, where it's the song Why and it's playing on the radio in the Night Watchman sequence. And I can't think of that song without getting a little bit creeped out. And I think this does exactly the same thing with a lot of music. It just kind of twists it up into a different context. And I like that a lot. Yeah, it does. They also weave the score in to some of the musical cues as well. So you do get the song playing, but you also get the score alongside it, which is kind of dipping in and out of the song to enhance the mood. There's a bit where Eloise is running away, but she's seen all these visions and the song's playing, but also the score's cutting in at the same time to make it even creepier. So it's full of really, really nice touches like that, this movie. I think Edgar Wright's given us something that he should be immensely proud of. And I could watch it again. I mean, I watched it yesterday, but 
are talking about it now, I could just go back down there and, and watch the whole thing again. I'm I'm a really big fan of this movie. And I think that, yes, I can understand why people didn't get on board with it totally, but it goes where it needs to go. I think if you're disappointed with the ending, I get why, because it goes in a direction that you could think, well, it doesn't really kind of serve justice to the characters who deserve it. But at the same time, it kind of does without spoiling what happens at the end. So I've got no problem with the ending. But for anybody that said, well, I was kind of disappointed that it was this that happened in the ending rather than that. I get what you're saying, but I think as you get to a point in the movie, it's inevitable what's going to happen at the end. Yeah, I I like the twist. I, I think it was a direction that nobody was truly expecting. So I think it's quite bold of them to go down that route. For Edgar Wright, this film was a long time in the making. He originally came up with the idea back in 2007. So it's been a long time. And the character of Eloise is actually loosely based on his mother because she had the same gift as Eloise where she could see paranormal so and other people wouldn't believe her but he was in the position where he would always believe that his mum was saying what she could see was true and then that's where the character of John is loosely based on himself so there's it's kind of a little bit autobiographical but not hugely it's just loosely based on some of his own experiences there I think there was definitely debate over what the title of the movie was going to be the one of the titles that I really liked it could have been called is Night of a Thousand Eyes. I think that suits it really well. But I think it was Quentin Tarantino that suggested Last Night in Soho would be a perfect title for a film. And that's how it all came together. And I agree. I think it's a really cool title, but I would have liked the other one as well. I think Night of a Thousand Eyes is a song. Um, Last Night in Soho is also a song. So you could yeah. have had either of them. The, the Thousand Eyes one's very jalloy. That's a very, mm. very jello title. Last Night in Soho is a more intriguing title because it could go anywhere. You could pin Last Night in Soho on a movie of pretty much any genre. It could be a drama, could be a romance, could be a thriller, could be a horror. And I think Last Night in Soho is all of these. There's romantic elements, there's drama, there's thrills, there's definitely horror in it. I don't think there's much in the way of comedy. I think there's a few nervous laughs, but that's about all you're going to get in this. But yeah, it's a great movie. I really would recommend it to anybody that hasn't seen it because it's a really, really well put together piece of cinema. Looks great, really tightly scripted. There's some pretty good scares in it if you're a horror fan. And it's a really satisfying piece of work. You come out of it thinking, yeah, that's that's made by people who really cared about what they were doing. Absolutely, I 100% agree with that. And I think to a point as well, you don't necessarily have to be a hardcore horror fan to enjoy this film. I think if you um, like anything to do with the 60s, like whether it's the score, the imagery, the fashion in it, I think this has a lot to offer beyond just being a piece of horror for that type of audience. I think it's for everybody, this film. There's something in it for everyone. Before we um, conclude our discussion, I just want to say there's also a reference to the 1996 movie The Craft in this film in the Halloween party where the kind of mean girl characters are dressed up as the witches from the craft and fittingly Jocasta who is a fantastic character in this film she is like the chief mean girl who 
it's kind of like the catalyst for why Eloise decides to move out of her halls of residence and she's fittingly dressed as a Verusa Volk's character Nancy from the craft so I really really like that as well obviously you know Edgar Wright knows his stuff with when it comes to horror and just there's so many layers in this film there's just so much we could talk about yeah because it's just one of those films that it's just got so so much going on in it that you're just going to notice something different each time as well so yeah, it's definitely one that is worthy of a rewatch. And even on a rewatch, when you know the twist, it doesn't detract too much from it because you kind of you're looking out for the clues. That's true. Yeah. When I went to see it at the cinema, yeah, the bit with the craft. I mean, I was sitting on my own. I went to see this on my own. But when they did the bit with the craft, I was like, Haha, yeah, it's the craft. I was like I had a massive grin on my face. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's it's a really, as we've said a lot of times, it is a really clever movie. I really think it benefits from rewatches because there's lots and lots of detail and there's clearly stuff that you miss the first time you see this because there's lots and lots of depth and there's all this stuff going off in the background. There's, there's references to bits that are going to come later in the movie. If you're looking around the background in places, it's that sort of movie where they've loaded the sequences with other references. But when you're first watching it, your focus is on what's going on right in front of you. But as you watch it further, then the stuff in the background comes into play as well. So it is that sort of movie. It does reward repeat watching. Not a lot of movies do, but this definitely does. I certainly enjoyed this as much yesterday as I did when I saw it in the cinema. So does Rotten Tomatoes agree with us? Well, Rotten Tomatoes... It has a 76% tomato meter and a 90% audience score. So I think that's absolutely fantastic. Um, I mean, I'd give it 100% personally. And the same with IMDb, a 7.1 out of 10 for IMDb. That's pretty that's good. Pretty good, yeah. It would be 10. Because yeah. I just absolutely love this one. It's one of my top films at the moment. So I need to see something that could potentially top it. But at the moment, I don't think anything has just yet. But I'm uh, looking forward to seeing what more horror movies to uh, come out this year in 2022. So after our first 60s nightmare, we have another 60s nightmare, but in quite a different way. It's 1963's public information film, A Boy Goes Cycling, which was produced with the assistance of the Company of Veteran Motorists, it says here, for London Council. And it's all to do with cycling safety, specifically the cycling proficiency test. This is just a bizarre slice of 60s history. Absolutely. So the Boy Go Cycling, as all the other public information films we've covered, is free for your viewing pleasure on the BFI player. So I'm just going to give the synopsis of to give you kind of the idea of what this is about so you can decide whether you do fancy watching it or not. Pedal Power saves Dad's day in this colourful cycling safety film set in the sunny 60s southeast London. You can almost smell the chalk dust and hot asphalt in this colourful film about two schoolboys who take their cycling proficiency test so they can cycle safely to school from their homes in South East London. 
helped by some very 60s visual aids, dummy road signs, a slideshow, and a real-life policeman, the lads pass with flying colours and get Dad out of a fix with a broken-down motor. The wry commentary is spoken by Johnny Morris, a popular mainstay of children's television from the 1960s to the 1980s, who became famous for his role as the zookeeper and voice of the animals in the long-running BBC series Animal Magic. Yes, Animal Magic. Animal Magic's a weird one because it was ostensibly a programme about zoos and animals and their kind of the life that they have in zoos. But Johnny Morris, as the zookeeper, also did the voiceovers for the animals. So he would put voices on when he was in the animals' enclosures. So you got this very strange sort of surreal world that he created where the animals were talking back to him. Now, he does the sort of thing here as well, where he's putting words into the mouths of some of the characters. It doesn't work quite as well here. It comes across as quite weird in this one. At one point, he's pretending to be the policeman. He's pretending to be one of the teachers. He's talking as one of the kids at one point. It sort of works because there's no actual on-screen dialogue and you have to fill the gap with something. You can't just have narration all the time. But it does come across as being slightly strange. It's quite a boring 15 minutes as well because the synopsis that you've just put down there it makes it sound far more exciting and funny and entertaining than it is. It really is a plod. This was clearly made by people who had no grip of how cinema works. Because we've seen some public information films that have been made by proper filmmakers. Some great stuff like Apaches was made like it. It was shot like a movie and it was great. This is just like somebody bunging a camera in front of somewhere and filming it and going, yeah, that'll do. You know, we'll just go on to the next bit. Out of the public information we've covered, and I think because we've covered some of the more notorious ones, this was always going to come off as second best to some of the others that we've done. This, it starts off that it's kind of threatening to be some kind of cycling disaster movie because it shows you sort of a bent bike and it's warning you about the dangers of going on the road and you're thinking, oh, is it just going to be 15 minutes of people having cycling accidents? No, it's not. It's 15 minutes of these two kids trying to pass their cycling proficiency test. And it is every bit as dull as that sounds. Oh, yeah. Dull was the first word that sprung to mind when I was watching this. I think I was kind of zoning out as well, because it is this one person's voice that is going throughout it. And it's very much an educational film. It's the type of film you can imagine that you're having to sit down and watch in school, basically. There's nothing exciting going on in this at all. It's just very much footage of these kids learning to ride their bikes and passing their proficiency test. And this man just kind of pedantically explaining each process of it as well. So for me, it wasn't very exciting. It wasn't anything jaw dropping like some of the other ones where it's like, did they really go there? Did they they really push the envelope like that? It's got nothing in that I think this might be the dullest one we've covered on this podcast. <laughs> Quite easily the dullest one we've covered. There's nothing to sustain the interest. Even if you remember taking a cycling proficiency test, you'd think, well, surely actually practising the moves and taking the test must have been better than watching people practising the moves and taking the test. And there's also some fairly weird casual sexism in this as well there's a a girl called elaine 
who's also taking the test. But she seems to be the brunt of all the negative comments. At one point, this bloke goes something like, oh, don't forget to lubricate your brake cable, my dear. So fuck off, fuck off. Mm. You know, you're not talking to the other guys like that. And then at the end, there's almost this sense of one that's saying, oh, Elaine passed. Oh, oh, amazing. A girl passed the cycling proficiency. Oh, it's the 60s. Oh, like knock me down with a feather. It's like, oh, how how dare, how dare somebody female pass the cycling proficiency test. So at that point, it actually stirred me out of my slumber because I was thinking, oh, fuck you, a boy goes cycling. <laughs> so you got a little mini rant there, everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's um, throwing in that whole casual sexism. It does not translate well to today's time and place. It's, uh, yeah, very off-putting. And just at the end, it, like, shames the other two kids for not passing. But you can always try again next time. <laughs> oh, I don't know. It just, yeah. This one is not very interesting. Again, we chose it because we wanted something directly from the time period itself, from the 1960s, and uh, I think we picked a dead here. Yeah, well, they can't all be classics. I mean, we've picked some pretty good public information stuff so far, but this one, I guess it's trying to be informative and it does give you a little bit of a glimpse into what you need to do to pass this cycling proficiency test, but it does it in such a flat way. There's nothing amusing or entertaining or well there's nothing dramatic about it either because usually in these public information films you get some kind of impending disaster that's either averted or actually comes to be so you think that at some point you might have somebody who's not taking the test who comes to grief on the cycle in the road somewhere no no this doesn't have anything to do with that this doesn't have even have the imagination to warn what it would be like if you didn't pass the test so there's no graphic footage of somebody getting knocked off the bike it's just quite a long series of sequences in a schoolyard with kids pedaling around fake painted roads and with people with mock traffic lights and manoeuvring and checking brakes and tires and all that it's incredibly boring yeah absolutely um i suppose the most conflict that it comes into is like at the beginning the kids have to wait for the bus and they're made late for school because they haven't been able to pass their test and their friends are just like cycling past waving at them to be like haha i'm gonna get to school quicker than you <laughs> And then there's the uh, end scene where the dad gets into a bit of bother, his car won't start and he's got a business meeting to get to. So, of course, the boys help him out and he remembers to strap his briefcase. And so, yeah, there's like literally that is the most mild form of excitement this has to offer. So, yeah, I wouldn't rush out to see it. I mean, if you're interested in that type of film from the 1960s, you know, go ahead if you have a specific interest in cycling. It might, you know, speak to some people, but this one is the type that I was not really listening and nodding off, so. I mean, if you want to know what Johnny Morris was doing at the time, in addition to Animal Magic, he was doing stuff like this. But even his voiceover kind of seems a bit half-hearted at points. He doesn't really seem to be throwing himself into it like he did with Animal Magic. And the whole thing about being late for school because you're catching the bus every morning. Get an earlier bus! This is London. Surely there was more than one bus to the school. Get an earlier bus. And that is the moral of the story. Get an earlier bus. 
I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for our 60th episode of the HD Movie Podcast. As always, thank you for listening. And thank you for joining us for 60 of these. We are so grateful to all of you who listen. Um, It means so much to us. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search HD Movie Podcast. So we're going to be back in a few weeks' time with, surprise, surprise, episode 61. But what are we going to be doing on episode 61? Hayley's here to reveal all. Okay, so the movie we have chosen for episode 61 is a film I actually haven't seen. It's from 1996 and it is called Kazam. The only reason we're going to be doing Kazam is because I couldn't find the movie I actually wanted to do, which is Shazam with Sinbad. So we're going to take a look at its lesser great counterpart, Kazam. So I hope you stay tuned for that one. So for all fans of Shaq, get ready for this one. Until then... We're going to have a little bit of a break, but we'll be back soon. Stay safe, everybody. We'll see you soon. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Hayley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bain. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbean.